I'm Danielle Laporte, and essentially, this is a one-woman show about self-realization called With Love, Danielle. I'll be talking about compassion, self-help fatigue, sex, joy, serving the world. This is about a spirituality that's way more rock and roll than it is oppressive. I am not into making grand motivational promises, but I can commit to showing up as fully, sincerely, authentically as possible with the intention of really alleviating suffering and amplifying joy just for starters. It's about doing everything I can to help all of us feel a little less crazy, a lot more full of possibility, and clearly part of the solution. Hello friends, it's Danielle and I'm breaking tradition and for the first time in possibly ever, I'm having a guest on today. I'm letting everybody know in advance that there's going to be some sensitive content in this conversation and heaps of hope and solutions and a heart-centered perspective on how we heal the world. So I'm sitting here at the Ally Global Foundation. We're in this beautiful podcast studio. And I'm sitting here with the founder, Mr. Randy Watson, who I think is an earth angel, but we'll get to that. And he's really jet-lagged because he's just come back from a trip. You're in Cambodia or Nepal? I was in both. You were in both. Of course, you're in both. Can you give us in a couple sentences what Ally Global does? Yeah, we exist to prevent human trafficking and help survivors find healing through safe housing and education and just a real community of support around them. Mm Mm-hmm. So for everybody listening, I think it'd be a great idea if you're in a place to do this to just breathe into your heart, maybe close your eyes. And my personal prayer is that everybody have the courage, which is a heart-centered virtue, to really look closely at this issue. And I want to start on the dark side, and then we're going to take it to the light. So driving here, I was thinking about my inspiration to support this cause, uh, the cause of refuge and really putting an end to this. I don't know that it'll happen in my lifetime because the darkness that we're going to speak of has been going on for eons. But I want to just bring it down to the studs and like on a really personal level, which for me is about parenting. So I have a son who's now 18 And one of my, what I felt at the very beginning, one of my core responsibilities was to keep him from being sexually abused. And everything else around that felt superfluous, like, ah, education, nutrition, whatever, if I can just keep him protected and intact in this way. Because the devastation of sexual abuse is so far-reaching I think it's so pervasive, we don't even see it. Um, You know, our fellow Vancouverite, Gabor Maté, Dr. Maté, who's been working on the downtown east side for decades, says that unequivocally, like 10 out of 10 highly addicted individuals he worked on healing and doctoring were all sexually abused. So addiction and abuse go hand in hand. And then for those of us who have experience that kind of abuse and don't have 
substance issues, it comes out in all sorts of other ways. I think it's its own epidemic that is devastating. And then to exploit it in such a way that it's like systematized, systemic, and commodified is just evil on top of evil. So that's why I'm here. And we got together because, you know, a few years ago, the hashtag save the children and conspiracy this and that, and it really rose to people's consciousness. And there was like an upside to that. And there, there was a downside to that. And I'll stop talking about me. I want to, you're going to just give us the light. But when I was in my <clears throat> 30s, I was running a think tank in Washington, D.C., on future studies, and I got the the privilege of getting a tour of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And I learned that 80% of kids who are abducted and exploited, it happens through people that they know. Shocking. There's just so many shocking things that day. And I just felt so helpless. And also my consciousness wasn't expanded enough to like commit my life to it. And now every time I come to your offices, I want to quit my day job and like just stuff envelopes for you. Like I want to do anything I can to like just save another kid. I find, create another home. And what I see with Ally Global Foundation is, you know, it really appeals to my entrepreneurial sense. Like I see a lot of similarities about how you run this organization and the really formidable success that Charity Water has had. It's like, we're going to do this in an entrepreneurial, um, shake all the old ways off way. And there's a responsibility around the management. But there's also your angelic quality <laughs> and your approach. I mean, last time I was in the office, what I left with, the diamond that I left with was you saying, you treat these children, one, and it's not you taking full responsibility, but one has to treat these kids like you would treat your own child, which is you're in it for the long haul. Mm -hmm. And we watched a video of, uh, you showed us a video of laughing children. Sorry, were they in Nepal or they were Cambodia? In Nepal, they yeah. were in Nepal. Yeah. And, you know, brightly colored clothes and giggling and so fascinated with the iPhone like in their face and you wouldn't if you did not know the context you would not know that the girls in that beautiful home were rescued mm -hmm. from human trafficking situations that the sweet big smiling child at the end was born to a woman in a brothel and essentially raised under a bed for a year and a half. Yeah. Yeah. And Ally Global is providing long-term long rehabilitation and care for these kids. So I want to start with the long game. So walk me through that girl's life. She's found under a bed at one and a half years old. How do we help her be whole? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating you bring that up today. I just got some photos of her uh, a couple hours ago, and she's now mm -hmm. she's just about eight, and she's just this joyful uh, little mm -hmm. eight-year-old troublemaker. And yeah, it's 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 exactly what you said. It's it's could we look at you know whatever issue it is specifically this one, and think if we were to commit to this for the long term, mm -hmm. if we were to treat people as we'd want to be treated, if we were gonna if we 
were to like love and care and commit to people, what type of healing would actually happen? Mm. And, and that's really what, I mean, our national leaders have done in each context. What we try to do is not just receive a, ch- a, a child from, you know, from the police or from government or from what other, whatever NGOs have affiliated with helping us to rescue and put them into a system, but receive the child as if we're going to commit to that child until they can be an independent adult. And that changes everything. It, it removes any sort of system around trying to create the exact environment and makes everything really individual, uh, individualized. And so that's what we've seen. That's where we've been able to see success for a young, an infant like her, where she came into care and it was her at a year and a half that we had to care for, but also her mother who was, you know, only, I think Mm -hmm. just about 13. Mm -hmm. And so you have two children and one that hasn't been able to experience childhood at all. And the other one who, uh, as an infant, was like she didn't even know what any form of healthy affection was because her mother didn't. And so you have two very different scenarios that you all of a sudden have to treat very differently um, and treat fully. I mean, treat is the wrong word. You have to be present. And, and I think that's what our team aims to do is be present for each individual that comes into care and try their best to understand the context that they've come out of because every abuse situation has its differences. Uh, And it's often not just physical and sexual abuse, but there's malnourishment. There's all these other factors. And so you Mm -hmm. get an infant or a child into care that you're trying to deal with the whole person and then commit to that whole person so that they can become you know, eventually a healthy and independent adult that can help other people. Mm. And so that's the long game is, is thinking, how do I get this person, this child that comes into care to the point where they could hopefully commit to somebody else like they were and, mm. and help them. And I think that's, uh, and for this story specifically, I think that's what's so amazing is, you know, the main caretaker that was kind of assigned to that, ch- that, child and her baby when they came in is still part of our project Mm. and she's been doing this work for 20 years and it's 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 amazing when when you work with people that are in this social work space across whether it's in canada or nepal or cambodia wherever they are the people that have been doing this for 10 20 30 years um they're just they're the type of people that you you want to be around because it's, it's nothing to them is about numbers. It's all about the individual. And I think that's, what's really remarkable. Mm. Conduits of love. I mean, this is, this is love operationalized. Yeah. The things that I've learned from you that have really stuck with me are that, well, let me first talk about my own selfishness and myopia, which is, On a good day, when I'm really in my heart, I consider myself a citizen of the planet. I feel like all children are my children. I'm, you know, the affinity of motherhood. I hear about causes in far-off lands. You know, we're here in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada right now. And I want to give, but I feel more, I feel the impulse, like, what's going on in my own community? And, oh, and everything in my community is fine. 
And I've learned that everything in my community isn't fine. So one thing that stuck with me is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the number one consumers of child exploitation are North American men. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I think it's, yeah, to kind of talk to your your whole point there, I think it's easy, it's easier for us as uh, Westerners, as Canadians or Americans to think it's, this is an over there issue, wherever over there is. Mm-hmm. And to realize that in any industry, whether it's legal or illegal, there's a supply and demand. And the supply is driven always by the demand. And the demand in the case of child sexual abuse, whether it's online or in person, comes from the West. And the majority of consumers are, yeah, are men in North America or in the UK, in Europe, that are that have the resources to purchase and fund this trade. And whether they whether they think that they're just funding something for their own personal consumption and not realizing that it's an entire web of abuse and destruction that's happening happening and it it's not just happening in our context here it's happening uh i think the what can happen when is people look at like a maybe online exploitation or like child pedophilia or whatever however dark you go down that rabbit hole as looking at something on a monitor isn't actually happening to somebody in real life mm-hmm. and that's been the dem- the demise of our society when it comes to technology is that we've created massive industry that's exploiting people. And because there's a screen in between you, you don't realize that that's physically manifesting somewhere, mm-hmm. which is a huge part of the problem. And that's just a fraction of it. Of course, the other piece is people traveling to consume or create these offenses, which happens as well. But I think what we saw in the last few years specifically as travel was locked down for everybody, this issue didn't didn't die down. It actually increased because people were more isolated at home and consuming more digitally. And so then that generates, you know, exponential rise in abuse overseas. So, yeah, the issue, it, it's very, it's borderless. And we we like to think that things are you know, neat and clean and whatever issue we're talking about is within a certain geographical area. But when it comes to any sort of trafficking and abuse, it's a borderless crime and it happens from people from all countries uh, taking advantage of people that are vulnerable. And those vulnerabilities can obviously vary, but um, we are extremely complicit as Westerners in creating this industry and seeing it thrive. And so I think we have an exponentially larger responsibility to combating it. Part of the ethos, as I've observed it with Ally Global Foundation, is that you're not sensationalistic. So you don't lead, you know, I've been through your fundraising presentations and you know, hanging out, and you're not leading with the really gruesome stories. I'm a little more sensationalistic with my friends. I'm like, listen, dude, you need to know what's going on. And I'll share some of the stories, and the cognitive dissonance is amazing. 
like really amazing. And the response so often is, until I can do something about it, I'm not going to look at it. Right. What's your response to that? Yeah, it goes back to like our initial kind of conversation around treating everyone like your own child. Mm. So if you think of yourself as a parent, how would you want your child to be portrayed? If something happened to them, how would you want to talk about that? And I think that's that's our posture. I think in the in the charitable space, unfortunately, to get people's attention, you have to make things loud and dramatic and extreme because you're fighting to fund prevention or work or real need in the world. But the reality in the case of children that have been abused is I don't, I don't want those stories to be out and in the public because that child one day is going to be an adult and they don't need to see their story that's been commodified. They've already been commodified. Yes. And so that's a really hard tension because in order to engage people and have people care about this issue, they understandably, to an extent, need to un- see what's happening. Um, but for us, it can never be at the cost of one of those kids because then we've like failed before we've started. Mm. And that's, I mean, it's a, it's a hard to figure out where those lines are each day for our team. It's like, and, and it, we even have some children that have come through care that are still minors even that are like, I'm okay with my story being told. And we have to tell them like, no, we, we yeah, actually don't, don't want don't be you okay to do with that. that. Yeah. Um, it's not until those minors transition into adulthood that we like will explore that conversation further. But even then in the global South context, the average person isn't understanding really what their story is being used for in our context. And so I really believe that it's our responsibility to educate and inform both sides because we don't want to become the exploiters. So what do you have to say? Because some of the most, I mean, it's all upsetting. Yeah. What do you have to say to a North American parent? Let's just go like super generic, middle class. You know, you're a relatively attentive parent, your kid's your kid goes to school, they got decent grades. What should they be aware of? Yeah, I'd say if you're a North American parent and you have kids, I mean, really of any age, um, you should be having every conversation that you, th- that you think they're too young to hear, you should be having it. The average age of a child being exploited in Canada is eight years old for boys and between 10 and 14 for girls. And that's starting through some sort of digital medium. So for boys, it's primarily through video games because now all video games have chat, some form of currency, VR is becoming bigger. So the access to to your child, if they have a video game with internet is really high and they're building friendship on there with people that they don't know. And so those relationships are, are building really quickly and trust is then building quickly and they're not understanding what those risks are. And I think one of the, like a really simple insight when it comes to boys or girls in video games is the child is more concerned with the video game being taken away mm. from them if they disclose to their parents something weird happened. 
I think what's important to to realize as a parent is if your child's playing video games, you need to say to them, hey, if you ever feel uncomfortable on this video game, if there's something that happens in chat or something that you're unsure of, come talk to me. Don't worry. I'm not going to take your video games away. That conversation alone can prevent abuse from happening because the child all of a sudden feels like, oh, the risk here isn't me losing this privilege. I can... I can have an open conversation with my parents about what I'm seeing or experiencing. Okay, so you have to take us down the path a bit because lots of people right now are thinking, how does that lead to abuse and what it's just so far out there? What yeah. happens? Yeah, so really simply, um, a relationship forms uh, in a video game where they're trying to accomplish some mission together. And maybe it starts with the the unidentified person saying, hey, can you send me like a photo of your face? I want to see who I'm playing with. And right away, that's open to one door. So now it's okay to send photos. And then the next conversation maybe is like, hey, I'll give you X amount of currency or points in this game if you send me like a photo of your full body clothed. And as things progress, it leads to like, oh, like take your shirt off I, like, and I'll send you something or or whatever. Like it, it progresses like incrementally, uh, and then it gets to a point where the the perpetrator will use the images that they have to coerce the child and say like, "Hey, if you don't do what I'm asking you next, I'm going to tell your parents," and it becomes a manipulative game. And beyond that, it can become personal because you can then they'll then ask to exchange contact information or location. Um, which can lead into obviously then uh, physical mm-hmm. in- interaction. And it looks like this looks different for boys at eight to 10 years old versus the average girl being, you know, exploited or uh, extorted through uh, through social media, through Instagram, through whatever sort of. Through the shopping mall. Yeah, through any sort of other platform. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so now I'm aware that there's a, a ring that can go on in different shopping centers across North America. Dudes come in, treat them like queens. They become this boyfriend for six months. And then it's like, hey, why don't you just like do the sexual favor for my friend? And if you don't, there's these consequences. And by that time, they're so wrapped up in the family. They know where the parents work. And it just becomes this blackmail mission. And then there's this other layer of complexity, which is... I think because of, you know, obviously because of threat and one's own unhealed self, girls then kind of rope in and recruit other girls. Like, hey, I'm going to go to this car parked here and do what I'm going to do, and you just wait for me. And now why don't you do it? You can make some money. And then we go on, and then... Yeah. Yeah, it it gets... For us to think that this isn't, like... At the end of the day, this is about making money for somebody. Mm-hmm. And the people that are making money off of this crime are making a lot of money. And so they've invested in their business, in their crime. Mm-hmm. And they've figured out the right system. They figured out how to convince and coerce people. I think as Westerners, maybe we have this thing in our mind where we've seen the movie Taken or we've seen something that it's like, you know, a white van's pulling up and throwing somebody in the back seat. It's not that, it's not that archaic. It's not that aggressive. It's much more calculated. It's how do we 
coerce and convince and manipulate this person so that they become dependent on us so that we can control them to do what we want. Mm. Is there a, a greater um, threat, vulnerability to exploitation with like middle-class white kids or marginalized, like, is it everybody? Is it a specific population? Yeah, I think it, it changes country to country in some ways. It's, you know, vulnerable populations are always more... Exploitable? Exploitable. So if there's, you know, if, if they're not speaking the main language in the country, if they have less, less access to education, if there's increased poverty in the home, if there's parents not around. In, in Canada, 51% of trafficked people are Indigenous. Indigenous people make up 4% of the Canadian population. Mm. Like, and I don't know that same stat for the U.S., but for us in Canada, it's horrific. Uh, but you have people that are living in rural parts of the country that get trafficked or moved into metro centers where they don't understand the context or what's happening. And so the, the whole thing with this issue is to disorient, disorient your victim. And so you see that's why vulnerable populations are more targeted is because they can be they can be moved and manipulated easier or they can be taken into a context where they don't understand the language. So if it's new immigrants, that, that's another large issue that we've seen even locally here is there's increased reports of, you know, young girls that are being exploited where their parents are first generation immigrants. Their parents don't have English as a language yet. They don't know what hazards to look out for because they're, they're trying to settle into a new country. And so, it's not to say that, you know, middle-class Caucasian kids aren't at risk. There's risk, especially now with, on, like, with online access. Like if you have a wireless device in your room, you have another person in your room. Hold up. Let's just say that again. If you have a wireless device in your room, you have another person in your room. Yeah. And as a parent, do you want another person in your room Absolutely with your kid? Absolutely not. Yeah. And... If, you're, if your child, if you haven't walked them through that, if they don't understand the risks of that, then there's, in my opinion, there's no reason they should have wireless devices in their room because you don't know what's happening. You can't know what's happening mm -hmm. because even for us, for me, for us as an organization that's involved in this every day, the risks continue to change the new apps that are available continue to change. And so for you as a parent to stay up to date on where your kid is at with technology, it's, it's really difficult. But the simplest thing you can do is make the physical device not accessible in a closed environment. Mm -hmm. And have the conversation. And have the conversation, yeah. My philosophy as a parent has always been, I'm going to get to my kid with the information before society gets to my kid with misinformation. Yeah. And so you have to have really uncomfortable conversations, like you said, way Younger. earlier yeah. than you have to. And then as kids get earlier and there's more, you know, there's more barriers to communication and resistance and individuation and everything – I think you have to just push in a way that you haven't pushed. Yeah. You know, you got to melt through the rebellion. And what Ally is trying to do is create more information education to get to kids in schools because parents aren't always aware and aren't able to have those conversations. So what does it look like 
trying to get to tweens and teens and the vulnerable girls who are going to shopping malls, who have the devices, who in some cases, you know, are being tracked, their parents get tracked. The guilt that's, you know, one of the mechanisms is, I know where your dad works. I know his, who he works with. And you sent me that, you know, that kind of photo a couple of weeks ago, and I can bring your family down. I mean, this is how insidious. Yeah, it's so manipulative. So yeah. manipulative, yeah. So what's the, um, like, what's the theme? What's the conversation with young women? Yeah, I think it's, if you look at, I don't know, if you even think of yourself, if you're a, a parent, if you think of yourself as a child and your experience with uh, learning anything that was sexualized in culture, it happened mm-hmm. through... It didn't happen through a digital medium. Right. It was your dad's Playboy magazine. Yeah. Or it was a conversation that was kind of uncomfortable with your peers and somebody maybe knew more information than you. And then you were left kind of wondering what that meant. And maybe you tried to research it or who knows how you found out, but it wasn't in your hand. Mm -hmm. And now with, you know, even with an application like TikTok or anything that's moving where it's, it's almost all video. All of the different trends and uh, competitions are hypersexualized, and so children at like six, seven, eight years old are learning the stuff that would take us, you know, maybe a year to learn in half an hour, and they're seeing a thousand examples of it, mm-hmm. and so which are being rewarded socially by likes, et cetera, et cetera. Totally, and so. For us, that's where we have to engage is how do we how do we enable children to realize that it's not their peers only that are watching that content? Because mm. that's the disconnection. Mm. It's that I'm doing this for my friends and I'm having challenges with my friends. And how could we expect children to realize this bigger picture? They shouldn't have to. Mm. That's a whole other part of the conversation. That's a simple and direct way in because, you know, I've been so shocked about what I've seen, what I see every day on TikTok. Um, But also, you know, one of the prerequisites of my kid was like when he was 14, 15, 16, interested in a girl, I was like, let me see your Instagram. And then I realized a lot of kids have two Instagram accounts. One that like everybody get to see and the parents, you know, look at me and my cat. And then they have the one that just the homies see. And it's like me kind of doing soft porn with my boyfriend jeans on. And I'm just like, yeah, no, not her. (laughs) And I want to go in, you know, like... The activist in me is like, we need to talk to young women about hypersexualizing. That is just like a huge mountain to climb. Just get in with, you're going to do what you're going to do right now. We don't have to have a moralistic conversation about it. Just know there's some creepy dudes looking at you, and this could not turn out very well. I think there's still this naivete that class and privilege can prevent this and that is a big illusion yeah it's happening across the board yeah Yeah. talk to me about the refuge program yeah the refuge is uh it's based on everything we've been talking about it's based on commitment it's Mm -hmm. it's our program that is it's you know asking people to commit to giving monthly 
whatever they can. We have people that give a dollar every month. We have people that give thousands of dollars every month. And that that monthly commitment enables us to make the monthly commitments to children. It enables us to be like, yeah, we're going to take these these children in and commit to them until they have everything that they need so that they can become full adults back into society, um, standing on their own and serving their community. Uh, and in order for us to make those commitments, we need people to make the commitment to help. And uh, it's something that we've been uh, overwhelmed by seeing people um, understand that and step into that space. Um, it's amazing what generosity does for you as an individual. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that we're losing in our culture. And to see people step into that is such a gift um, because you giving to help somebody else also like serves you in so many different ways. It opens up your eyes to see things differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really, I mean, our posture as an organization is, yeah, of course we want to serve these children, but we want to bring other people into that. I, I think you should bring me into all fundraising meetings, and I could yeah. talk about how the heart chakra expands and how everything you get into alignment with your soul light when you just like make the donation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah this is karma burning and alignment with your higher light. Um, talk to me about the well, like the the love culture and how children who have been rescued or literally put on doorsteps. It sounds so clinical, but are rehabilitated, and what what do they get? Yeah, I think our uh, the posture is that yeah, everybody gets welcomed into family. Hmm. Truly, it's like you if you're coming into care in any one of our homes, there's somebody else that's there that's going to be like looking out for you as an individual, and then not too long after you're there, you're going to have to look out after somebody else. Hmm. Because everything is about giving dignity back to the person. If you've having, if you've had, if you feel like you've having your dignity taken away, and if you legitimately have, how do how do we come around you and help to restore that? It's not by doing everything for you; it's by showing you that you can do stuff for other people. Mm. And I think that that's been the difference that I've seen in our work around the world is is seeing children given responsibility children given the opportunity to like serve and love and care for one another while being cared for themselves it produces incredible bonds and they're doing it amidst a community of people that they all know have gone through similar things than them but none of them ever have to share what they've gone through to their peers it's back to like the marketing fundraising storytelling piece is like we don't want to have to share all of these stories explicitly sure we have files on every child or child and Mm. we know their medical history and we know the stuff that they've been through but that's their information and so once they come into care it's like how do you how do we do everything that we can so that they feel loved and cherished as an individual so that they can do that with other people and that's that like snowball effect is it's overwhelming. I, I I I got home from there three days ago, and yeah, honestly, coming back into 
context here is like it's so stark the difference yeah you had said out of all the back and forth you've done over the years this re-entry was the most culture shock you've had why is that yeah it's uh, it's interesting i've probably come back into canada 60 times and uh what I realized this this time is the depth of relationship that I've allowed to be built personally for me with our team in each country uh, has hit a point where I'm the the legitimate friendships and values there um, are are so deep and real that coming home I really miss them and it's not a it's not an emotional response I've done this a lot of times it's very much like oh I want to try to continue to do life alongside these people in these different countries because we're on the same mission. And like, those are my people and I want to be with them and support what they're doing. And that's really hard to do across, mm -hmm. <laughs> across oceans. Um, but it's such a beautiful gift. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I'm, so I'm really, really thankful for that, that somehow I've been able to meet and connect with these people in different countries. And, you know, many of them for, decades have been on the front lines of this fight and we get to we get to do it together and the children are both male and female yeah non-binary yeah various ages yeah they're getting properly nourished there's counseling there's art therapy skill building electricians education, education yeah. hairdressing technology yeah and some of them are deciding to stay and carry on that counselor responsibility with the community. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's fascinating. We've got uh, multiple girls right now, multiple young women going and doing their social work degree. We've hired back many girls that have gone through mm -hmm. care. Uh, we're in the process of building and designing new facilities in, in uh, uh, multiple countries, but we just had one of our girls that came through care, finished her architecture degree, and she's now just got a job with the firm that's designing one of our facilities. So it's like, mm -hmm. it's the full circle stuff is so amazing. And to see the level of confidence that these young men and women have going into these careers and using their careers to, to not, not give back seems so like simple. Like it's not give back, it's like give all. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, we give out of excess in the West. It's not transactional. It's, it's not just transactional. This, they're embodying yeah. all the love that they've been given. It's like yeah. what I have is actually yours. Actually, yes. Yeah. Like I, I got a card when I left from our last safe home. And I, I opened it in the airport and it had $50 in it. Oh, God. It had $50. There's 24 mm. girls in that home. Mm. And they get about the equivalent to $1.50 a month as an allowance. Mm -hmm. But they said, we want you to know how much we appreciate what we have. And could you go get yourself something? <laughs> and it's like, oh. like, how do you process that? Yeah. The meek shall inherit the earth. Yeah. Yeah. So... I mean, it's it's incredibly refiring and refueling to be like, mm -hmm. wow, this this work is amazing. And what happens when somebody that has gone through real suffering, when they f see that other people care for them mm -hmm. and see that they're loved, 
man, that person becomes so powerful. And um, it's, yeah, it's hard, it's hard to put this into words, really. I can never get out of here without crying, ever. <laughs> uh, I want to talk about the move for freedom. So this is my personal plea. I'm just going to really go for it in terms of fundraising right now. If I have ever given you an Instagram reel, a book, a blog post that has inspired you in any way, would you consider doing the following? You can give in two ways. This coming August 6th, 2022, you can take the yoga class that you go to every Saturday morning anyway you can canoe, you could run a marathon, you can do it on your own, you can get your family together, you could do it with your workmates, two people, six people, but where two or more are gathered, and just like raise some money. And then we're all going to move our bodies on Saturday, August 6th. The event is called Move for Freedom. You can do it in any time zone, anywhere you are, are in the world, any activity, and just like ask your buds to give you some money towards moving your body for creating safe homes and refuge for survivors. We don't say victims, survivors of human trafficking. If people want to find out more information and how to build a team, where do they go to, Randy? Moveforfreedom.org. And I can vouch all of the funds are channeled in the most ethical, meritorious ways. Uh, Team D got together last year. So if you're in Vancouver and you meet us, you can meet us uh, at 10 a.m. on the Saturday the 6th at the Laughing Men Statues in English Bay. And we're going to walk Stanley Park and maybe swim. We raised a modest seven grand last year. How much did you raise altogether as a just over nine hundred thousand? Oh, so year. we're so going to do a million this year. Yeah. What can a million dollars do? A million dollars can run eight safe homes for a year. Oh, um, let's do it. Yeah. yeah, that's hundreds of children with safe places. Hmm. Let's let's wrap with some word association. Okay, um, heartbreak. What's that bring to mind for you? Yeah, the situation in general. Hope. I got to see two girls walk into the safe home last week. Mm. Joy. Yeah, that's the the feeling that I see every time I walk into these these homes and interact with these kids. Mm. My word association is just love. Yeah, yeah, just love. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening, for feeling, for spreading the word with love. 